Well, thank you all for coming tonight uh, and for the Institute for having me here. Uh, Marek and I, I know, are on similar wavelengths regarding foreign policy, and I'm sure the same is true regarding the Institute. Um, <clears throat> I'll be clear from the beginning, I'm very opinionated about this topic, as the title of my book shows. Um, and I think we should be opinionated. I don't think it's a, a doubtful, a, you know, dark, confusing situation at all, although some people make it out to be. Why have I chosen this uh, description? Um, why do I think Ukraine is the front line between the global battle between good and evil? I believe this war, obviously it's an echo of World War II and World War I to some extent, but I believe this is a war between an imperialistic expansionist Russia and Europe in a post-colonial, post-imperial Europe. Europe long abandoned imperialism. America's never really embraced imperialism. So the Euro-Atlantic space is a post-imperialist space, and Russia is in the business under Mr. Putin of expanding its empire once more. So how do we get to this war? And this is really my thesis. I believe the West has failed to recognize that evil must be defeated and not contained. So my speech is largely a critique of containment theory and detente. And I think in that, I'm very close to Ronald Reagan's thinking. So in this presentation, what's at stake in the Ukraine war? What lessons can we learn from history, especially World War I, World War II, and the Cold War? The disastrous legacy of containment, the successful Reagan policy, we win, they lose. Ukraine is paying for containment's failure. I truly believe Ukraine is being ripped apart by the Russians due to a lack of clear policy and clear moral fiber in the West. I will list briefly, although this is a huge topic, the bogus arguments put forward why we shouldn't support Ukraine. On the contrary, why we should support Ukraine, and specifically why we should support Ukraine so that it wins this war. It's not enough to say, yes, we support you. We want to help you. We have to be committed to a Ukrainian victory. And then I'll make a few conclusions. So the war in Ukraine, as I mentioned, is a war of an imperial power destroying its neighbor. Russia does not want Ukraine to exist in any permanent form. So it's destroying Ukraine as a free and independent nation. That's the bottom line. If Russia wins, Ukrainians will lose their rights, their personal rights and freedoms, They'll lose the right to self-determination. The uh, aggression and barbarism of Russia will be rewarded. Whatever price they pay, they've already lost tens of thousands of their own people in this fighting. And who knows, their army's been greatly downgraded by the fighting. But if they win, they will still say, they can still say that they've come out ahead, that they've benefited from their aggression. Clearly, Russia is in the position and has the mentality to threaten its neighbors, particularly the Baltic states, Poland, Moldova, and who knows where else, what else they have their eye on. If you think of the former Soviet Union, there's many countries that are potential for Russian aggression throughout Central Asia, for example, into the Far East. Also, all the bad actors in the world, and unfortunately, we still have a lot of them, China, North Korea, uh, Cuba even, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Iran, Syria, they will all be encouraged by a Russian success. What about if Ukraine wins? Well, they'll be free. They'll be free to choose their government. But also, I think for the world, the right of independent countries to their independence will be reinforced. And I think if Russia is defeated by Ukraine, it'll set Russia back, certainly as an imperial power, at least for decades, if not permanently. There's all sorts of speculation. What might happen to Russia? Will it break up? At least will Putin lose power? 
but there'll be massive changes in Russia. And also the other aggressors such as China towards Taiwan will be cautioned by that. I believe also that if you look at the world and you see all of these rogue regimes still operating, still in power, one has to wonder why a largely democratic world tolerates this. Why do we allow them to continue, these countries I'm mentioning? We should be much more proactive in liberating the people under these regimes. This was the great thing about Reagan. He saw the suffering of the people under communism and he believed we have to do something to help them. The same is true with all these other countries. I was surprised to see in foreign affairs, just a couple of weeks ago, an article called The Delusions of Detente. It was an outright criticism of the policy of detente as a failure. The author, Michael Beckley, pointed out, and I'll just read it because I think it's so good, of the more than two dozen great power rivalries over the past 200 years, none ended with the sides talking their way out of trouble. Instead, rivalries have persisted until one side could no longer carry on the fight or until both sides united against a common enemy. The myth that you can talk yourself to a solution when you're dealing with two powerful rival, rival entities, rival states, is exactly that, it's a myth. I know it's kind of a cliche, every war is a failure of democracy, or uh, diplomacy, excuse me. This is a, a completely false notion. And uh, my talk has a lot to do with explaining that. More specifically, I think Victor Davis Hanson has an excellent analysis of the difference between World War I and World War II. The failure of World War I was that Germany never surrendered unconditionally. It kept a lot of the Russian territory it had occupied, and it never gave up its militarism ideologically or its military establishment. So, of course, Hitler used those to rebuild the military and start World War II. World War II, by contrast, ended with a total surrender, the unconditional surrender of both Germany and Japan. Not only that, the Allies occupied those countries to make sure the terms of the surrender were applied, were carried out. Because of this, Germany was transformed, Japan was transformed, and now are very positive contributing members to the world community. That's a huge difference and a very important lesson. It has to do with the quote I uh, used earlier. The one big problem with the end of World War II, yes, Germany was crushed, Japan was crushed and transformed. But because Stalin was our ally and because we gave so much to Stalin through Lend-Lease, I don't know if you know the numbers, it's almost an unbelievable amount. 400,000 trucks, thousands of tanks, thousands of airplanes, millions of tons of supplies. With all of that largesse from the United States, Stalin, of course, was able to recover from the German invasion and then himself began to occupy European countries. So, so many East Bloc countries became socialist or communist, not by their own choice, but because of Soviet occupation. The same was true in the East. Stalin entered the war right at the end, and Manchuria, North Korea, and the Kuril Islands were all occupied by the Soviets. Furthermore, in the East, when uh, Stalin's army defeated the Japanese in what they called Manchukuo after about a week of fighting, all of that Japanese war material was given to the Chinese Communist Party, which was a client of the Soviets. And that helped them greatly in gaining victory in their civil war in 1949. But also, Marxist revolutions metastasized. All over the world, we have national liberation fronts in the third world, in so many parts of the world. And when they were successful, they established communist or socialist regimes, all of which were oppressive, totalitarian in nature. The other thing that happened was that Marxism spread through Western institutions, as has been chronicled many times. And finally, it has also metastasized as an ideology to adapt to the circumstances in what we call critical theories through the Frankfurt School, first of all, 
and then later through postmodernism, Michel Foucault and this school. So Marxism is not weakened. Marxism is everywhere. I think a big part of the problem, as I mentioned before, is the theory of containment. I'm sure all of you are somewhat familiar with it, if not very familiar. Uh, George Kennan, um, when FDR established relations with the Soviet Union for the first time in 1933, Kennan went out as a translator for William Bullitt, our first ambassador to Moscow in the post-Soviet era. He was, he became a great Russophile, unfortunately. Um, if you study about his life, he came to prefer Russia to America as a country. He thought the Midwest especially was just hopeless. Uh, he liked the coast better. He was a true elite. He was a true elite in his attitude. But he said when he visited the birth or the home of uh, Tolstoy, I felt finally felt at home. This is the one place on earth I'd really like to live. It's undoubted that his Russophilia influenced his policy. <clears throat> he wrote a famous telegram called the Long Telegram, supposedly the longest telegram in US history in 1946 when he was in Moscow and asked by the ambassador to write a policy paper about how to deal with the Soviet Union. This is where containment theory was, was developed and he elaborated on it in an article for foreign policy shortly after that. <clears throat> he believed that the US, of course, should block Soviet expansionism. This, of course, makes sense. Everybody agrees with that. And that became the, the heart, really, of the Truman Doctrine. The Truman Doctrine, I must say, though, was more, a little bit tougher than Kennan wanted to be. It was more based on military blocking, military containment of Soviet expansionism. But in theory, containment really governed US foreign policy towards the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War period. And it led to the detente theory, which was also, I think, a total failure. I just want to read two lines, two sentences from the Truman Doctrine. Uh, the first, totalitarian regimes imposed on free peoples by direct or indirect aggression, aggression, undermine the foundations of international peace and hence the security of the United States. In other words, our security and our well-being is related to what happens overseas. We cannot simply sit by and let totalitarians take over the world. And then this second sentence is generally what's considered the essence of the Truman policy. I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. Well, the, the minorities he was talking about was generally communist revolutionaries and outside pressures were the Soviet Union and other communist states. <clears throat> so this became our gospel. As the US State Department says, the basic US strategy for fighting the Cold War with the Soviet Union from 1947 to the collapse of the Soviet Union, 1989, was containment policy. I believe it was a great failure. I think it was like, it sounded good, it looked good, it made sense, but it failed. The first fallacy, I believe, was the fundamental concept of containing rather than defeating communism. There's obviously a huge difference in policy terms. <clears throat> Kennan wrote that we must have this long-term, patient but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. This would promote tendencies which must eventually find their outlet in either the breakup or the gradual mellowing of Soviet power. Well, some people point to the the latter 80s or the early 90s say Kennan was right. No, it wasn't Kennan's policy of containment that was right. It was Reagan's policy that we win, they lose. A huge difference. It's very similar. I think this policy is very similar to what many have shaped the policy towards communist China. If we just engage them, if we just do business with them, they'll be changed by our civilization. We're good people. They'll pick this up, they'll become like us. It's the same naivety, frankly, and it's based on a lack of understanding of communism. <clears throat> the second fallacy, I think, 
is that Kennan really believed that through policy alone, we could contain the Soviet Union. It wouldn't take guns. This is totally naive. If you know anything about Marxism, it's based on violent conflict, dialectical materialism, historical materialism. It's rooted in the notion that progress comes through violent revolution. If you know that, how can you possibly believe that without force, we can stop the spread of communism? <clears throat> the second fallacy um, is this that I mentioned before, that we should contain, not uh, defeat communism. Sorry, the second one, yeah, is false, excuse me, I'm repeating myself. I think Kennan failed to recognize the real evils of communism. He opposed moral considerations in foreign policy. And this, you can kind of understand it. Let's be pragmatic, real politique. You know, we're not gonna get immorality. Everybody has good and bad qualities. But this is also somewhat of a, uh, it's almost a treason against Western moral principles and democratic principles. Our systems of government are based on primarily Judeo-Christian values. That has a meaning. Marxism is not based on those values. So this led to what I consider totally fallacious thinking, the moral equivalency argument. Well, you know, they want peace, we want peace. This kind of superficial analysis, which in turn led to the disastrous sphere of influence policies. In other words, okay, Kennan advised Truman, for example, well, we can't stop the Soviet Union pursuing what it wants. So after World War II, the Soviet Union obviously was taking by force, occupying Eastern European countries, starting with Poland. Kenner's advice was, well, we can't stop them, so we have to just accommodate them. <clears throat> and this idea came, okay, so Russia's sphere of influence includes all those countries, this is what believed, the East Bloc, Central European countries. And even to this day, as I'll point out, a lot of our policy has been based on the idea that Ukraine is part of the Soviet sphere of influence, now the Russian sphere of influence. <clears throat> and he failed to recognize the real dangers of Marxism. He never studied Marxism deeply from what I can make out. So he ignored the high price paid by the victims of communism. He was almost like he was blind to them. Even though he went in 1933 to Moscow, this was about the time when Stalin was beginning to do the show trials and beginning to just rip through his own administration, trying people on false pretenses, executing them, sending them to the gulag. So he was there during that time, and yet he had this opinion. <clears throat> the other thing is, he never changed his opinion. He never learned, he never learned the containment didn't work. It's kind of remarkable. So in the post-World War II era, under containment, the USSR strengthened its worldwide influence. It spread dramatically. Communist China, of course, was established in 1949 and became a superpower. <clears throat> Soviet-backed wars for liberation multiplied worldwide. Who knows how many people died? It's at least in the 100 million or more people died. I mean, some people like the Epoch Times believes in China alone, something like 80 million people died through the Great Leap Forward, the Cultural Revolution, these other massive communist exterminations of uh, whole populations. <clears throat> and tens of million more, of course, suffered under oppressive regimes. Marxism was allowed to corrupt Western institutions because it was never clearly identified for the danger it is. So now our Western universities in particular, trickling down to our schools, are heavily, heavily penetrated by Marxist and neo-Marxist ideology. Solzhenitsyn called out Kennan in, 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 by name when he spoke, when he gave the commencement speech at Harvard in 1978. He said, um, thus we mix good and evil, right and wrong, and make space for the absolute triumph of absolute evil in the world. The people who were suffering under communism were so elated when Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire. Imagine what they experienced in those prisons as Solzhenitsyn described and so many others, Nathan Sharansky, people like that. They literally cheered because they felt finally 
a leader in the West recognized who he was dealing with. <clears throat> Truman announced his uh, policy, I think, in March 1947, um, and he requested $400 million from the US Congress for the, what became the first sort of implementation of containment theory. And this was money to go to Greece and Turkey. Greece at that time was suffering under a civil war. Um, if you want to know about that war in a great book, uh, read Eleni by Nicholas Gage. It's a great personal account of what his family went through. And Turkey was suffering under Soviet pressure to change the Montrose Convention. In other words, who would control access from the Black Sea to the Aegean Sea through the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles. Stalin had proposed to America that the Soviets and the Americans together control the Dardanelles. So Turkey was struggling to keep its supremacy there. So part of the money went to help Turkey in that effort. But in Korea, the situation was completely different. And I believe this is where containment met its, uh, met its match and was defeated. In, in January 1950, <coughs> uh, Acheson, the foreign secretary at the time, made a speech that today is very controversial. But he said that American policy, the American defensive perimeter in Asia, did not include Korea and Taiwan. In essence, he was sending a signal to the Soviet bloc that America would not defend Korea if they attacked. As you probably know, right after Stalin entered the war, on the first day, Soviet troops occupied North Korea as with all of the deals with Stalin, he lied. In every case, he had committed to holding elections, democratic elections in the countries his soldiers liberated. He didn't do it in a single case. And Korea, of course, was one of them. So he supported Kim Il-sung, who became the communist leader, and he was pushing to invade the South, to unify Korea under the communists. So this was a huge signal of encouragement to the Soviets. At the same time, in 1949, Stalin and the Russians had developed nuclear weapons of their own. Of course, after stealing the technology from America. But anyway, this was hugely important for Stalin because now he had a weapon, a nuclear weapon that he could use to threaten the West. So with this cover, Kim Il-sung invaded. Then of course, when the Americans entered the war under Douglas MacArthur, they pushed the North Koreans almost to the Yalu River, the border with China. And then the Chinese entered the war, something like 200,000 Chinese soldiers. After that, when they settled again on the 38th parallel, MacArthur wanted to have permission to bomb the Yalu River bridges, which connected North Korea to China, and to bomb sanctuary locations within China. Uh, he was pretty forward. I mean, he didn't really wait for Truman before he made his policy statements. And Truman was fed up with him and fired him. He was followed by Matthew Ridgway and then by Mark Clark. Mark Clark uh, got permission to bomb the North uh, infrastructure, military infrastructure in the North of Korea, but he wasn't given permission to bomb the Yellow River bridges. If you think about it, even if you're a high schooler, I think you can figure out if you cut the bridges through which all the assistance coming to your enemy. It's a pretty, a pretty helpful thing to do. But again, Truman would not have permitted. So uh, Clark was left with the business of trying to negotiate an armistice, which he accomplished. But only after he had to go back to bombing the North, because Kim Il-sung was, was bound and set on taking South Korea. <clears throat> This was done, of course, as always, in the name of saving lives. Uh, Truman said we're saving lives by ending the war with an armistice. This is patently not true. <clears throat> Unfortunately, I continued the policy of Truman. He actually went to Korea as a president-elect, I think in December 1952. Um, but he kept the policy. So North Korea was abandoned to Kim Il-sung and the communists. Of course, millions of North Koreans have suffered unbelievably in that time period the, from things like starvation, but 
the bottom line is through oppression. If you want to read another good book, uh, it's actually a novel, but it's um, The Orphan Master's Son. I don't know if you, any of you have read that. It's about North Korea. It's very, very well done, though. It's a more recent book. The, the grim reality in North Korea is in, almost incomprehensible to us. So that's, we handed over the North Koreans, really, by not following the general's advice. Both MacArthur and Clark were convinced they could capture North Korea. The American army was much better equipped, much more powerful. And of course, the East Asia region has been destabilized ever since. And America's had to keep a military presence in Korea to this day. So we're spending billions of dollars every year, right? And our soldiers have died. About 100 Americans have died in, uh, in Korea on the, on the DMZ, so-called DMZ. About 4,000 Korean soldiers have died. So what lives did this save? I don't think it saved many lives. And in fact, on the contrary. Also, this policy in Korea really set the stage for containment uh, application elsewhere, particularly in Vietnam was the most immediate follow-on. And honestly, if it was supposed to contain communism, it's failed totally because communism only spread afterwards. Very briefly about Vietnam, um, really the US political leaders they entered the war, as you know, incrementally, bit by bit, never really intending to win. They didn't listen to the generals, as in Korea. They were heavily influenced by domestic politics, the anti-war movement. I was part of it at the time. <laughs> Walter Cronkite in 1968 declaring the Tet Offensive was a failure. That was literally absolutely wrong. It was not a failure. <clears throat> and most importantly, I think Nixon and Kissinger both believed the war was unwinnable. Perhaps Kissinger more than Nixon, but that was the whole basis for the negotiations in the Paris peace talks. So during those two years, America suspended the bombing. The North Vietnamese, as always the communist side, uses a lull in the fighting to rearm and re-strengthen itself. So of course, when the peace treaty was finally signed, almost immediately, the North Korean North Vietnamese army invaded the South and took over the rest of the country. So they got what they wanted. In South Korea, at least that part of the country was saved. In Vietnam, just briefly, 2.5 million boat people fled the country. Many died trying to escape. Millions were in re-education camps. At least 165,000 died in those camps. And of course, Vietnam has been a communist country ever since. The other thing is that America in Korea and Vietnam set a pattern, set an identity for its foreign policy that was very dangerous in world global affairs. So now we come to Reagan, as I said, you know, he said detente, maybe many of you know his joke, he said, detente is what a, far, a farmer has with his turkey until Thanksgiving. <laughs> So the farmer is the Soviet Union. <clears throat> so I think he really saw through Soviet propaganda and Soviet speak. He understood very well what was at stake. So he broke the containment and detente spell. And this is why he was successful. He saw communism as evil. He studied communism in depth before he became president. He knew it well. And he knew that communism was responsible for millions, tens of millions of victims. As you all know, he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. <clears throat> and in his negotiations, he always negotiated from a position of strength. And the reason was he did not accept the bluffing and the threats of the Soviet Union. So as I said, we win, they lose. He refused to give up Star Wars famously in Iceland, in Reykjavik, when he had the summit with Gorbachev. Gorbachev was putting maximum pressure on him to do a deal to give up Star Wars uh, in exchange for a deal, and Reagan said no. And that basically was the turning point. The Soviet Union was crumbling. If you want to read about that period again, a very good book is Vladimir Bukowski, uh, Judgment in Moscow. Bukowski was a dissident, Soviet dissident, 
And under Yeltsin, he got permission for a short period to look at the archives of the Central Committee of the Communist Party. And so he was able to transcribe many of the discussions and debates that took place in that. And you can realize from that, the Soviet Union was collapsing. Afghanistan drained its like last resource. It can no longer support East, East European regimes. And of course, eventually it crumbled. One of the most uh, distinguished authors on the Cold War is the Yale historian, John Lewis Geddes. And uh, he, he said that the, um, the use of the evil empire by Reagan and anti-communist political allies were effective in breaking the detente tradition, thus laying the groundwork for the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union. I believe this was critical. We had to end detente in order to win. <clears throat> So victory must be complete for good to prevail. Anything short of full victory will not last. Containment, Ostpolitik of Willy Brandt, detente failed to end communism. Reagan's policy was successful. It brought the Soviet Union to an end. It liberated the East and Central European countries from uh, the hegemony of the Soviet Union. And it established a pattern of success over communism. This was very important. However, um, communism and fascism were not permanently defeated at the end of that uh, Cold War. Russia never went through a Nuremberg-type reckoning. You know, the leaders who were responsible for so many crimes against humanity never faced judgment. They made their way into the new Russian establishment, many of them. Putin is one of the prime examples of that. He was a KGB operative for many years, and he managed to work his way into the favor of Yeltsin and became the president. So he, Putin actually resurrected an imperial and militaristic Russia, rather like Hitler was able to do after World War I. China has grown much more powerful than the USR was, simply because of its wealth. <clears throat> And we have countries like North Korea, Vietnam, Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela are still socialist or outright communist. Marxism and neo-Marxism thrive. So I believe Ukraine is paying for this failure. It's paying for the failure of containment and detente. It's a victim of an unreformed, barbaric Russia. Whole cities are destroyed. I mean, it's impossible to catalog all the atrocities, tens of thousands are killed, both military uh, personnel and civilians. These numbers are always changing, but approximately 5 million people have been displaced internally, and another 6 million have been forced into refugee status overseas. Of course, some of them come back, it's constantly fluctuating, but the whole country has been turned upside down. Phosphorus and cluster munitions have been used against civilians. <clears throat> Thousands of men, women, and children have been raped. There's just unbelievable, grisly accounts of this. 700,000 children have illegally been taken to Russia. This is according to their own commissioner of uh, children, unbelievably. 80,000 war crimes or more have been identified and are being investigated. The number, of course, keeps going up. Every single day, Russia's committing war crimes in Ukraine. These barbarisms are what evil looks like. If you don't believe in evil, just look to what Russia's doing in Ukraine, objectively. Find the facts. I know some people don't like to talk about good and evil in foreign policy, you know, morality. Um, it's important. It's necessary. <clears throat> I'd like to point out as well, very briefly, that, you, that Russia is violating the five principles of genocide. If you violate any one of them, you're liable to prosecution for genocide. <clears throat> According to the Genocide Convention, the five, I'm summarizing them, killing members of the group, obviously they're doing that, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members, deliberately inflicting conditions to destroy the group, imposing measures to prevent births in the group, and forcibly transferring his children to another group. 
And of course, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, actually has indicted Putin for doing exactly that, which is good. It's a start. It prevents him traveling easily. It, it, it puts a, somewhat of a frame around who he is. <clears throat> so what is Russia now? What is Russia today? People say it's, you know, it's a democratizing country. Well, Putin's been the president for 23 years. That's not very normal for democracy. I would contend that Putin has transferred or converted uh, Russia into a fascist state from a communist state. The, the essential difference between communism and fascism is that in fascism, the dictator, the totalitarian, uses the church. You saw it in Franco's Spain. You saw it in Mussolini's Italy. You saw it in uh, Hitler's Germany. And the other thing they do is they, they try to capture the capitalist economy. They try to exploit it in what's called crony capitalism. That's exactly what Putin's doing. So he's become a fascist totalitarian, educated under communism. Terrible combination. And of course, like the Soviet era, he uses disinformation and propaganda to deceive the world about what he's doing. Interestingly, if you look at the allies of Russia today, almost every single one is a communist country, a socialist country, and all of them are totalitarians, right? These are his bedfellows in the world. <clears throat> I like to point to this thing, that he has an inherited a predatory character. And I think this is a very poor, important element about Putin that we need to understand. He's always looking for weakness in his rivals, in his enemies, that he can exploit. And he's very good at doing that. This is right out of the communist playbook. It has deeper roots as well, but that'll do for now. <clears throat> So for example, in Georgia, uh, he claimed he had a right to defend the Russians in South Ossetia and Abkhazia, sent his army in, and of course they occupied them. The global response was limp. Again in 2014, the Russian Black Fleet is, is uh, based in Sevastopol anyway, so it's very easy for him to use the soldiers from the Black, Black Sea Fleet to support his takeover of Crimea, the holding of a phony referendum and all of that. <clears throat> and in Ukraine in 2022. So he exploited the weakness. I think the Bush administration was weak in Georgia. Obama definitely was very weak in response to Crimea and the Donbass. And I think Biden has been very weak, basically, in the response to the latest aggression. I'd, I recognize that he's supported a lot of aid for Ukraine. I don't know where the impetus for that comes or the motivation comes for that. But if you don't really believe in the cause, you, you go slowly, you know, you go drip by drip, you draw things out. And this is the problem in Ukraine, they need to win. So that should be our policy and I don't see that. <clears throat> I think basically the US has sought to appease Russia and appeasement is at the heart of containment. It's the mindset of Kennan, George Kennan. He wrote in 1948 what was at the time a secret policy paper, and it's very revealing. He said Ukraine and Russia don't have any distinguishable boundaries. And he made this kind of incredible statement. The Ukrainian territory is as much a part of Russia's national heritage as the Middle West is to ours. He actually elaborated on that. He said the Ukrainian people simply speak a different dialect. But think about this. This man at that time was the head of policy. You know, he became the head of policy for about two years when George Marshall, Marshall became the Secretary of State. So it had enormous influence. <clears throat> and interestingly, again, here's another example. In 1997, after the Soviet Union had broken up, after the Budapest Memorandum had been signed in which Russia, America, Britain, and Ukraine all agree that we have to respect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. <clears throat> he said this, expanding NATO would be the most fateful era of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion. 
Isn't that the same story and we're going to get them upset? Well, don't you want to upset your enemy? Can you imagine in, in, during World War II if somebody made a statement like that about Hitler? Well, we really can't escalate the war. We can't send those weapons out there to England because we'll upset Hitler. It's insane. If your objective is to defeat, you can't say that. Actually, there were unfortunately voices that said just that yeah. in the lead up to World War II. And that was the isolationist voice in America. Yeah, it was very powerful at the beginning. Yeah, that's a whole another, uh, no other topic, yeah. <clears throat> Here's a third example. Uh, in 2014, uh, after the Soviets had occupied Crimea, they stirred up uh, sort of rebellions in the Donbass, in Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts. And the Ukrainian army fought them quite successfully, almost drove those forces into Russia. At that point, Putin sent 50,000 Russian troops, you know, without the uniform, to help his friends in these so-called people's republics. And they managed to push the Ukrainian army back rather rapidly. So the Minsk uh, conference was convened, led by Germany, France, OECD, and of course Russia was there, and a representative of each of those republics, and of course Ukraine. The deal done there was very, very bad for Ukraine because it de facto recognized those republics. And it de facto accepted the situation on the ground. In other words, the fact that there were 50,000 <coughs> uh, Soviet troops, uh, sorry, Russian troops in Ukraine. Uh, Obama said something interesting. It was like a, after his uh, term was over, he gave an interview to The Atlantic about his policy, the Obama foreign policy. And he said, the fact is that Ukraine, which is a non-NATO country, is going to be vulnerable to military domination by Russia, no matter what we do. In other words, what can we do? Well, that's hardly a scary statement for your enemy. Finally, I think Biden's debacle in Afghanistan was a terrible signal of encouragement to Putin. The America looked weak, it looked confused, unfocused. And of course, Biden made a famous uh, statement that everyone attributes uh, to contribute, sorry, contributes to Putin's policy. I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion, and then we end up having to fight about what we do and not do. In other words, then it becomes a political issue internally. Nothing to do with the illegitimacy of an invasion. You know, again, this sort of talk can only encourage someone like Putin. We still have people in the foreign policy establishment calling for a draw, calling for negotiations, an unwinnable war. The argument is, let's put an end to the fighting. Let's save lives, just like in Korea. But if, if negotiations were to start now, think about it. It would mean that Russia is sitting on big parts of Ukraine to this day. And Russia is not going to leave voluntarily. So a negotiation from Moscow's point of view is a negotiation in which it keeps some of that territory. Zelensky recognizes that, which is why he's not willing, wisely not willing to negotiate unless Russia agrees to withdraw. The other thing about negotiations, it gives the bad guys a chance to rearm, re-strengthen their position, and so on. But, uh, <clears throat> well, I'll just speak very briefly about what I consider bogus arguments for not supporting Ukraine. Excuse me. <clears throat> Each of these arguments really deserves Oops. Oh, I did something wrong. Can you help me find this? There it is. Thank you. 
<clears throat> I think the most common and the most annoying of all arguments is that if we give them these weapon systems, it'll escalate the war. How on earth can you escalate the war unless you send nuclear weapons to Ukraine or chemical weapons? Russia is using every weapon in its arsenal short of nuclear weapons and chemical weapons so far, although it's using phosphorus bombs, which really count, in my opinion, to fight the war. So how can that be escalation? But this is constantly brought up. In, in, uh, a year ago, uh, Olaf Scholz had an interview with the New York Times. He said, we won't give them Ukraine leopard tanks or Mardas, um, infantry fighting vehicles, because it'll ex escalate the war. So it took months, literally months, to finally persuade Russia to give its leopards. And then only after Britain had provided challengers, America had agreed to send Abrams. And then it took months more for them to be delivered, for Ukrainians to be trained. This is the story of Western aid. It reflects this mentality, this kind of cautious mentality. Well, Ukraine's paying for that caution with blood. They're dying while we wait until we feel comfortable sending the weapons. The other thing that's annoying about this, this is Russian rules, Russia's rules for the war. They keep saying, if you do that, we're gonna do this. The threat always is we're gonna use nuclear weapons. You send them tanks, leopards, we're gonna send nuclear weapons. Um, uh, if you send F-16s, that's the most recent issue. We're gonna, we're gonna use nuclear weapons. Fortunately, the West has pretty much learned that Russia's bluffing. But this is such a phony argument. <clears throat> the World War III issue, of course, everybody's concerned that we will have to avoid World War III, but most of the military experts I've heard say the chance of Russia using a nuke, even a tactical nuke, is extremely remote. Unfortunately, the West has told Putin in no uncertain terms that if he does that, there will be really serious consequences, meaning Western military forces will drive him out of Ukraine, destroy the Black Fleet, Black Sea Fleet. <clears throat> and that's a necessary thing. Putin fortunately backed down. The main argument, or one of the main arguments that Putin loves is this, that if Ukraine joins NATO, it's a threat to Russia. Obviously, there's no basis for that in the history of NATO, in the articles in the Atlantic Treaty under which it was formed. It's a purely defensive alliance. Nobody thinks, in retrospect, that Finland, now as a member of NATO, poses a whole new threat to Russia. It's a ludicrous thought. Ukraine poses no threat to Russia, as a NATO member or not as a NATO member. Russia's a threat to Ukraine. Russia's a threat to other members of NATO. <clears throat> Another argument I heard Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald discuss at depth is that the West, America in particular, uses, is using this war and launched this war in order to lure Russia into a conflict so that we could bring down the Russian military, so that we can you know, reduce its capabilities. To me, that's pretty insane. I mean, Mark Milley estimated before the invasion that in three days, the Soviet, the Russians could occupy Kyiv. So he thought it would take three days. How could we possibly diminish the Russian military in three days? <clears throat> the other argument often brought, Ukraine is such a corrupt country, so much corruption. Russia is a not corrupt country? Does Russia have a moral right to teach Ukraine a lesson? We're gonna teach those Ukrainians how to be moral, how to be good. No. What about America? Don't we have corruption? Another favorite is the 1994 Budapest Memorandum is not a binding agreement. It's true. We didn't make guarantees. We didn't guarantee protection of Ukraine. But all the signatories that I mentioned before gave affirmations that they would honor Ukraine's territorial integrity in writing. And that was the basis for Ukraine to give up its nuclear weapons and its hold on the Black Sea fleet to Russia. 
So that was a huge sacrifice Ukraine made. And now Russia is first among the countries, the only one among the signatories violating that agreement. And I believe we do have a moral obligation to stand by that agreement. My favorite is the US has its own border problems. Does anyone think that if we stop supporting Ukraine, we'll start building a wall in the south or send more money to the, the southern border? It's nuts. Really, it's nuts. It's a, it, I see it in the political debates now. Uh, some Republicans are bringing this, unfortunately. Um, there's no relationship. Can't we do two good things at the same time? Can't we support Ukraine and have a strong border? <clears throat> All of these reasons are, of course, pushed out and spread by Russian propaganda. I don't think I realized personally how extensive and how effective Russian propaganda is until this war. It's amazing. And there's some good articles about it I've referenced in my book. They have a massive, massive propaganda operation. And it's not stupid stuff like you see on Russian TV. You know, Soroyevev's talking about they're all Nazis. We have to bomb. It's much, much more subtle than that. All of it plays on these points. You shouldn't escalate the war. World War III is around the corner, and so on. <clears throat> this, of course, echoes the threats of the Soviet Union. Stalin was the master of threats. <clears throat> and they're repeated. I, I don't know why people support Russia. I honestly don't know why any American would support Russia in this war. It's incomprehensible to me. <clears throat> I think it's based largely on ignorance, ignorance of the history, ignorance of the reality. If you've grown up in America, you've never seen a war. You've never seen your home destroyed, people around you killed. I think anyone who's got real international experience knows how grim this is, how grim this is. <clears throat> and interestingly, of course, the people who are clear about it are the Baltic states, Poland, the countries who have experienced Russian occupation for decades. They know exactly what's involved. They know exactly how Russia's lying. Putin is a typical Soviet apparatchik. He knows the game. He plays the game. And they're not fooled. I think one of the best places to find out the real motivation for this war, Putin's motivation, is his speech on February 21st, a national speech he gave, explaining his position on Ukraine. He basically lays it out. I'll just bring three, three main points. Essentially, he believes in the Russian Empire, and he believes the Russian Empire should be restored, and the USSR should be restored. So he said, Ukraine is not just a neighboring country for us. It is an inalienable part of our own history, culture, and spiritual space. Stable status has never developed in Ukraine. In other words, it belongs to us. It's part of us, inalienable. We use that term. <clears throat> Interestingly, too, he's very critical of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who, after the 1917 revolution, established the Soviet Union you know, in 1922 through civil war by occupying neighboring countries. Well, they set up the system of Soviet socialist republics, right? About 16 of them. <clears throat> And he thought that was a huge mistake because it gave them a national identity. It gave them some of their own rights, limited. They were all under Moscow. But it gave a veneer, an appearance of independence. Interestingly, Stalin used this when he demanded at Bretton Woods, um, not at Bretton Woods, at um, Dumbarton Oaks, excuse me, when he demanded that all 16 members of the Soviet Union should be admitted as individual independent countries into the United Nations. <laughs> that was one of his core demands. Of course, all of them were completely under the control of Moscow at the time. But anyway, <clears throat> so Putin thinks this was a huge mistake because it gave people in those countries the notion of independence. He also believed that Russia, he says, that Russia was seeking peace in World War II. He's obviously referring to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact through which Russia entered Poland, took Eastern Poland, 
The next year, it took over the Baltic states. It's responsible for Katyn, for murdering 22,000 Polish intellectuals and officers. This is his idea of seeking peace. <clears throat> but he says, at that time, we were not ready for war. And it's well known that Stalin had done so many purges of his military leadership that Russia indeed was unprepared. And that Stalin himself didn't believe that Hitler was going to invade until he did. So Putin says, this time we must be ready. In other words, he's drawing a parallel between NATO on the one hand and Hitler's Germany, the Nazi Germany on the other. That's how extreme his thinking is. The other thing he said, which is very telling, is the greatest disaster in the post-World War II era is the collapse of the Soviet Union. He believes this. Now, we can't quite believe it, but he believes this. <clears throat> Reagan said something, I think, that's very apropos and important for this moment about this intimidation and blackmail using the World War III as a threat. We cannot buy our security, our freedom from the threat of the bomb by committing an immorality so great as saying to a billion human beings, now in slavery behind the Iron Curtain, give up your dreams of freedom, freedom because to save our own skins, we are willing to make a deal with your slave masters. I think the same is true now. We cannot let Russian intimidation, Russian threats of World War III stop us from doing the right thing in Ukraine. <clears throat> One of the amazing things in Ukraine is Vladimir Zelensky. His appearing as a man of courage, a man of honor. You know, I think we all heard when America offered him a way out, he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And this really is his spirit. He's been a great leader. He's, he's responded to the challenge of his time. And I think that's one of the main reasons that we can support Ukraine with confidence. <clears throat> he's demonstrating how to confront and defeat evil. He calls Russia evil. He calls their behavior evil. This is important. At the same time, he's trying to clean up Ukraine's administration, trying to get rid of corruption. All of the post-communist states, post-Soviet states in particular, suffer from the problem of corruption. Because under the communist regime, the only way to get ahead was to cheat, to lie, to be devious. So that was deeply ingrained in those people who then became new businessmen, the new politicians in the newly independent countries. So it's not easy to eradicate that. Very importantly, when I was in Ukraine, I think it was 13 years ago or something, this Russian-Ukrainian divide was profound. I spent quite a while in Crimea, and I was honestly shocked. They were very pro-Russian. We talked to intelligent people. They were pro-Russian. They wanted to go back to Russia. I, I found that hard to believe. But the politics was playing out. With, you know, Yushchenko was very pro-Western, and then Yanukovych was a... Putin puppet, basically pro-Russian. All of that has changed. Through this war, all of that has changed. And you can see many accounts of how it's changed. <clears throat> so they've united around Zelensky. And there are no significant pro-Russian factions left in Ukraine. I've seen polls that show well over 90% of Ukrainians now want to join the EU. And this was, the, this was what was behind the Maidan uprising. Do we get into the EU or do we not? And the same number, similar number, want to join NATO. A few less, but most Ukrainians absolutely want to join NATO. So Putin has always claimed that he entered Ukraine on behalf of the Russian, the poor Russian people there, who were victims of Ukrainian Nazis. It's a completely ridiculous claim. Also, I think extremely important, the European nations have finally become serious about defense. I think many of you probably saw when Donald Trump spoke of the UN and the German delegation just broke out laughing when he said Nord Stream 2 was creating a vulnerability because Russia would use it, which of course they did. So this kind of mentality in Europe, especially from Germany and secondly from France, has begun to diminish, although it's taking a long time. 
And you know, this 2% uh, target, 2% of your GDP should go to defense. Very few of them have been spending that money. The Baltic states are leading the way. They're spending more than that at this point. <clears throat> and Poland is doing a fantastic job of arming itself. <clears throat> and of course, NATO has expanded exactly the thing that Putin said he was preventing through the invasion of Ukraine. It's good. It's great. They belong in NATO. <clears throat> so Russia is a genocidal aggressor, and it must be stopped. Ukraine is the front line between good and evil. Ukraine is the victim of aggression. We must never forget that. And that aggression threatens not only Ukraine, but Europe directly, and the Europeans know it, but also the world. Think about Russia's bombing of Ukraine silos in Odessa, Ismail, and other ports in Ukraine. I know living in the Middle East, most of the countries there depend on grain imports, uh, some from America, but Ukraine has long been a breadbasket for Europe and the world. <clears throat> so this is having a serious impact on the world, not to mention the price of oil and all these other repercussions. Russia's reasons for invading are imperialistic. Ukraine is paying for the West failure in the past. Russia must be fully defeated and reformed. That's our agenda. This is critical for Ukraine and the world. It really is a world issue. As Truman said, it affects America, it affects the world. Another conclusion we can draw from this war, the United Nations is a waste of time in terms of security. I don't know, maybe it's good, you know, sending uh, aid to Africa or developing countries. Insecurity is hopeless. And the reason is obvious. The main thing Stalin was pushing for when they were setting up the United Nations, and he won this from FDR and from Churchill, frankly, at, at Yalta, was the veto, the veto in the Security Council. In effect, it gives any member of that council, which now includes Russia and China, of course, a veto over UN policy. So how could the UN possibly enter into this conflict constructively? It's ended up with you know, some human rights work and things of this nature. <clears throat> so I think NATO has basically done a good job for one reason. Its purpose is clear. It's a security alliance. So a threat to it by its charter is a threat to all its members. And this gives it a kind of robust policy position that the UN lacks. The UN is all over the place. <clears throat> I think the NATO is also a model for a global security organization. And I've seen other people like Jessica Berlin in Europe uh, start talking about this idea. Why not have a global network, a global alliance of countries on the same page? They're democratic. They recognize human rights. They defend individual rights. Why not have such a network? This network can stop not only Russia, communist China, North Korea, Iran, Syria, Venezuela. It can be a global network to push back against totalitarianism. <clears throat> and I believe the US is the one country still with the clout, with the force, with the power to lead that. Finally, uh, we have to end containment and detente thinking in foreign policy. We must commit to a swift Ukrainian victory. We must give Ukraine what it needs to win as quickly and fully as possible. <clears throat> I, I, some of the best um, analysts are the Brits. Uh, I'm not boasting. But if you listen to Times Radio, it's a great uh, YouTube channel. They interview all of these military officers and former heads of the army. Almost to a man, they're clear about Ukraine. And they po they've pointed out, well, what do we have armaments for in NATO? What are these armaments for? It's exactly for a situation like this, when Euro-Atlantic peace and security is being threatened. NATO was established to stop the USSR. I recommend highly uh, General Ben Hodges, who was a former 
head of the US Army in Europe, and Philip Breedlove, who is a Supreme Allied Commander uh, in Europe. Both of them are great on Ukraine. NATO should invite Ukraine to be a member. I thought it was very disappointing that at the summit in Lithuania, they, they stopped. And the argument is, well, I think this will upset the Russians. I think it will escalate the conflict. Of course it would. But imagine if Ukraine was on track to join NATO, the clock would be ticking for Russia, right? Because as soon as it becomes a member of NATO, automatically all those 30, 31 members join its side. <clears throat> Russia must be thoroughly defeated and reformed. And it must be made to compensate Ukraine. It has the resources to do it. But Ukraine must be made whole as much as possible. You can't bring the lives back. You can't restore the missing limbs and all the suffering, the incredible suffering. But Russia must be made to pay. So thank you for coming and for helping Ukraine. Slava Ukraini.